we're just generally looking to balance systems and consistency with humanity and creativity. And we need both. If it's all systems and there's no human, that's not good. But if it's all willy-nilly making up as we go along, then that's also not going to lead to consistent experiences or consistent processes. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find a huge range of online courses, many of them accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, with up to a massive 30% savings for members of Australian Fitness Network. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Filex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar, at filex.com.au. From actor to accidental entrepreneur, Mark Fisher's journey has been as unconventional as his New York Fitness Club brand. Here he chats with the Fitness Industry Podcast's Oliver Kitchingman about interview hacks for effective hiring, the tension between autonomy and management, not tolerating bad or pointless meetings, and how real leadership means doing the right thing as opposed to doing things right. Mark, welcome to the Fitness Industry Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Okay, Mark, first off, can you just tell us a bit about your background and about your main role in the fitness industry today? Yes, I own two very eccentric boutique studios in New York City called Mark Fisher Fitness. It is a very eccentric place. So our tagline is ridiculous human serious fitness. So we're most well known for things like calling our clients ninjas and instead of a gym, we call it the Enchanted Ninja Clubhouse of Glory and Dreams. Our mascot is the unicorn. It's just a very colorful, irreverent, quite body at times brand. So we are most known for being crazy people. We are also very rigorous and pretty serious about the training piece too. We, we want to make sure we're good stewards of humans' bodies. And then in addition to that, because MFF has done pretty well, that's opened up a fair amount of opportunity for me to do speaking, coaching, consulting, both inside fitness and outside of fitness on the topics that I think I'm most useful discussing, which are everything from time management to organizational culture to customer service to building a team and all those kinds of things. If you're listening to this right now and you're not driving a car, I recommend that you type Mark Fisher Fitness into your phone or your tablet or your device and just can get an idea of what Mark's talking about there. And then you'll be like, aha, I see what you mean by irreverent and different in terms of fitness facilities. In fact, you might glance at it at first and be like, is this the right website? Is this a fitness facility? Is this a gym? Yeah, that's correct. It's very confusing in hopefully ways that are delightful and joyful. Okay, Mark, you describe yourself as an accidental entrepreneur. How so? Yeah, so I was a performer for many years. I was a professional actor who did training on the side, like a lot of people do. In my particular situation, I think I was unusually serious about the training piece, and I discovered I was very passionate about really getting into evidence-based practices for everything from training to nutrition to even behavior change. And it was not originally my intention to have a business the way MFF was. Once I decided to focus a little more, once I started to prioritize my training career in a way that was not always so backseat to my acting career, for a little while, the plan during the the six-month transition period was really more to probably have, do more what a lot of other people in the industry have done and do an online private persona. Because I saw a very clear path where I could build a 
modest but cool lifestyle business that would have me avoiding the inherent challenges that come along if one has a brick and mortar. Now, that said, it's interesting. I often think how things might have turned out had I been a little bit younger because the landscape has really changed in the past few years. And even in 2011, which is really when MFF was born, there wasn't nearly the proliferation of online trainers. So yeah, it's interesting to note, I think in a different world, I might have gone a little bit more into that space because I was in some ways, frankly, very daunted and afraid of the things required of me by running a business. But in retrospect, I'm very happy that I didn't. And when I say accidental entrepreneur, it's because it wasn't originally intentional. And of course, you know, by the time I signed the lease, I knew what I was doing. I don't mean to suggest that like, what do you mean I signed a five-year lease? But it happened very, very quickly. And very really within a, a two-month period, I can remember in June of 2011 being at a conference in the States and silently judging people for opening up a facility because I thought it was such a ridiculous risk to take. And then within two months, <laughs> I had told my agents I wasn't auditioning anymore. We signed a lease. We were hiring people. So, yeah, happened pretty quickly. Okay, so, I mean, that was involved a lot of steep learning, I imagine. Yeah. That was pretty much it. Okay, right, we're in this now. Well, I need to learn how to run a business. So I know you're a massive reader, huge advocate of reading lots of management texts. I mean, like 200-plus books, I think you said you've read on management, which is pretty good going. Does everyone need to read 200 management books if they're running a, to get the success in their club that you've got? No, no. And most people should not do that. I try to always clarify people because I know that number can be like, what? That is, have you ever heard of like a humble brag, mm -hmm. right? Where someone's like trying to sound humble, they're bragging. Oh, I've only read 200 books this year. Yeah, mine's more like, I feel like it's like a boastful confession. It's like on the one hand, it seems like it's like boastful, but if you look at it, it's like, they're like, what's wrong with you? I have a passion for and genuine ability and capacity to read in a way that's very aggressive. And also, that's not, not only is that not the only way to do it, for most people, that doesn't make sense. It just happens to be that is a practice that has really felt right to me. It's, it allows me to leverage my skills. But for most people, actually, I think that could be problematic. And it's interesting. I feel like to some extent, certainly in the States, I feel because people have heard of that number. On the one hand, it's cool if I've inspired people to read a little bit more. But understand education for a lot of people is a form of righteous procrastination. Mm -hmm where it's people are like reading, but they're not actually doing the thing. So if, if that information isn't turning to action, it can be problematic. Furthermore, if one does not have a sophisticated filter, if one is not able to look for patterns in what they're reading and then turn it into action, you can also just get yourself confused and just run yourself in circles because a clock is right twice a day and everything works some of the time. And if you are a student of any business topic, you will see every possible theory being espoused by very confident gurus who all have a track record. And I think the work of a learner is much like a bee seeking honey from various flowers. You're looking to look for strategies and tactics, but always be contextualizing how do I use this in my situation and with my particular strengths and challenges as a human. Okay, so Mark, one of the biggest challenges when people are opening a business, you know, they've Apart from the conflicting advice that, you know, as you say, there, you know, there's a million bits of advice out there, a million books out there. You've got to be able to, to pick and choose and, and define what's right for you because some will be right for you, some will be right for other people. Not everyone can follow the same, the same pattern. However, with, in terms of hiring, the hiring staff, like your team is, 
it's the lifeblood of your business. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, your members and your clients are the lifeblood right. of your business too, but without without your good team, they're not even going to be coming to you and then they're yeah. certainly not going to be staying with you. So one of the key areas that you talk on is the hiring and the management of an awesome team. So first off, with hiring, I mean, it's a perpetual challenge for fitness business owners. It's, our industry has pretty high turnover in terms of members, in terms of staff, right. in terms of personal trainers, lifespan. Yeah. So, I mean, it is a real challenge, possibly more so than, than other industries yeah. or than many other industries, at least. So could you share some of your, your interview hacks that I've heard you mention before and that make for a more effective hiring process? Yeah, I think there are a few things that one can bring into an interview situation. I think... First of all, from a a 35,000 foot view, I think one must know that that is a skill you just have to get good at. Because like you said, in our industry, there's going to be turnover. I don't think that's something to be afraid of. I think we just need to build in systems for not only hiring the people in the first place, but then ultimately onboarding them and taking care of them over time. Because in our industry, there's going to be movement and that's perfectly fine. When you're looking specifically at interviewing how to determine if someone is a good fit or not, the first thing that's the most useful tip someone can tell, if possible, is ideally, and this will depend on the context of one's business, but if one can set up some sort of internship program where you have the opportunity to really work with people for a while, that's always going to be the place you're going to get the best information. Now, practically speaking, for a lot of people, for a number of reasons, that's not actually a practical option. So you're left with this very imperfect thing called the interview where you meet a stranger and you ask them questions and you try to figure out how they're really going to behave. And I think anybody that's done it will be humble because the reality is it's just going to be a hard thing to do. But there are certain things we can do that will improve the quality of that conversation and make your chance of success better. So very specifically, one thing that we have found to be useful is making a big deal of asking for references up front. And that is stolen from a hiring methodology called top grading. If anybody wants to go deep on hiring, I'd recommend they check that out, though it's a little bit more robust than will make sense for most people, most sizes of fitness businesses, because it's really designed for more larger corporate structures. So the reason that that is recommended in that particular hiring methodology is because in theory, and this has certainly seemed to be true, When you ask someone to, and you clarify, and you make a big deal, I'm writing this down, I'm going to be calling this person afterwards, like this afternoon, I'm calling them at this number. You're sure? You're sure this is the number? So this afternoon when I call this number, I get in touch with the person? That individual will likely be a little bit more forthcoming because they know whatever they're saying, they now know for sure will be getting checked up. So they'll feel less tempted to embellish beyond the very normal human nature that all of us will tend to do. So that is a useful thing. Another useful technique as it relates to questions is asking about specific times in the past. Now, there are all sorts of interesting interview questions one can go with that are more philosophical or things like, what is your favorite book is one that I love. Mm -hmm. But when I'm looking to work with someone, really what I want to know is, how are you going to behave? What behaviors will you do? And instead of asking hypothetical questions such as, tell me how you would handle it if a client was upset with you, you're better off asking about specific times in the past. In other words, tell me about a time in the past, a specific time where a client was upset with you, and I want to know what did you do to address the situation and what was the outcome? 
So this way, I'm getting really a sense of how they actually behave in the real world instead of the hypothetical world where most people will be incentivized, certainly in the interview environment, to be like, well, I would just uh, calmly tell the person that you padoo So you'll tend to get more cleared on how they'll tend to behave in the future. So those are a couple of things that I think are useful for people to keep in mind. Okay. I was reading an article a couple of days ago, actually, about how it's now becoming expected by more employers who are interviewing to receive a thank you email or, or note from the interviewees mm. after the interview, ideally within the same day, and that that also is tells them a lot about the interviewee. Yeah. And not receiving a thank you, a thank you for meeting with me. It's not a thank you for, <laughs> for giving me the job. Right, it's a, right. It's just a thank you for meeting me. So there are a lot of things. It feels like there's, you know, the, the games change in terms of interviews now. The interviewee yeah. needs to be needs to be prepared to go that extra mile and to be to be a bit more open and a bit have a bit more of a dialogue going with the the interviewer. Yeah, I think that's true. Another technique one can use, and this won't always work necessarily, depending on if you're in a, a more rural <coughs> regional market. But for instance, recently, in one of my companies, Business for Unicorns, which is our coaching and consulting brand, mm-hmm. we wanted to hire a part time assistant that ideally we would hire the next year, bring them on full time and really have them be more of a client experience manager. So another technique you can use if you know you're going to be getting a lot of applications is to put in places what could be called tripwires. So in this particular application, at the end, we made it clear for extra credit, you can go ahead and send us three, you know, under three minute video explaining why you'd be a good candidate. Well, of course, we're not going to consider anybody that didn't send the video. And of course, the vast majority of people did not send a video. We also make it clear what's supposed to be in the subject line. Very specifically, we want your name, dash, client experience manager. And then anybody that can't read the details, maybe they sent the video or maybe the video is three minutes and 10 seconds. And again, it sounds like this is maybe a little bit fussy perhaps, but in fact, again, you're looking for someone with that level of ability to read a document, follow directions, and then pay attention to those details. So again, that won't work if you're in a situation where you maybe have some limitations because of geography for how many applicants you get. But if you're really looking to source applicants and you know it's a situation where you're going to get a lot of people applying, putting in tripwires can be a really useful way to just immediately get rid of 90% of the people. Oh, that's handy. You're saving everybody time in the long run, yeah, right? There's totally. less back and forth and unnecessary second interviews when you're basically going to just taking a lot longer to probably learn that, that same information yeah. that you can't follow totally. the simple instructions and requests. And it's too bad because in a vacuum, some of those individuals might have been okay, but you know, I don't want somebody that I have to okay. do that level of explanation. I prefer to just read the thing and do what it says. Okay, so when you've got you, you've put your tripwires in place, you've done your interview process, you've got someone who's managed to follow your <laughs> your yeah. simple instructions and requests. They've wowed you with their amazing video, and they look like they're going to be a great cultural fit. So, what does onboarding look like at Mark Fisher Fitness? Well, it's uh, this is the first thing I, because I'm transparently or compulsively transparent. It's something that we I think are currently doing an overhaul because I think we learned recently there were some kind of holes in what we were doing. But ideally, what it should be is. A process where you help people understand what winning looks like at MFF and what winning looks like in their role. So simply put, we're making clear what does success look like, and then we're training them on the skills required for them to do whatever it is that they need to do to be successful in that role. So a helpful way of looking at this when I'm working with somebody to help them improve their onboarding is... To some extent, the constraint for onboarding is always time. You only have so many hours you can train somebody while they're not doing revenue-generating activities. 
So even though this is an investment play dividend, the reality is you still probably can't do it for multiple months. So most fitness businesses will have 40 to 60, maybe 80 hours total of onboarding before they need to do stuff. Depending on the size of your business, it might be 20 hours. Probably can't get away with much less than 10, except for maybe a front desk person. And then let's say maybe you've got three weeks. But even so, it's going to be a finite number of hours that you have available to devote towards the onboarding process. Once you know how many hours you have, the second step is you want to make a list of all the things they need to be trained on. This could be anything from HR processes you need to train them on to perhaps an overview of the culture of your business, I think is a very important step that's not always done. Then to the far more tactical, here's how we do the things that make up your job. So once you have the time and once you have the topics, then you need to figure out how you're going to slice up the pie. So what is the appropriate amount of time proportionally for each of these topics for people to get trained on? And then lastly, that turns into a schedule. Because another thing I think is important to appreciate with onboarding is people will be nervous. They'll be nervous coming to a new job. And the more you can tell them exactly what to expect, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them what you tell them, and then tell them what you told them, the more people will feel set up and will feel they've got some structure and support from the organization. So just be really, really thorough and you're just, there's no kind of wriggle room then. There's no, there's no, oh, I didn't know I had to, oh, I didn't know that's what we did. It. Yeah. It's, yep, we've told you, we've told you, and we've told you again. We've shown you everything. This is how we do things around here. Yeah. And listen, even then, it's never going to be perfect. I mean, we've never had an onboarding MFF where at the end we weren't like, oh, they missed this thing. And this is, again, like any feedback system, you're always looking to audit. Okay, is this because this individual just messed up this thing? Or is there something we could be doing better? Even if we didn't do it wrong, could we make this communication more specific? So I think we're certainly always looking to improve this process. And recently, I think we've seen there were a few opportunities that we've seen to make the process much more effective than it had been historically. But I also, I'm realistic. I know that process will never end and I'll never be satisfied until I'm dead. So (laughs) I'll just keep looking to make it better and better over time. That's good. Perfectionism is good though. Yeah, I mean, certainly I think if one learns how to be a happy warrior and becomes comfortable with that never-ending desire for improvement, I think that can be effective, provided one is not just constantly beating themselves and feeling sad because they, they've never achieved their visionary dream that they'll never quite get to. Mark, one of the other things that you talk about is the the tension between autonomy and sort of guidance or management that can arise in the in the workplace. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so as a student of a psychological theory called self-determination theory, what we know is humans have a number of core psychological needs. And in the self-determination theory literature specifically, they say there are three. They're very academic terms, so I'll make them into English. But people want autonomy, which is a way they want some choice. They want to feel like they're they're not being constrained. They are a part of the process. They have some agency. People want to feel competent which is to say we want to feel like we're good at what we're doing, we want to feel like we're progressing, getting better. We don't like to feel stupid. We're afraid of feeling dumb. And then people want to feel related. So we want to feel like we belong. We want to be part of a community. We want to care for others. We want to feel cared for. And to some extent, I think there can be, there doesn't need to be, but there can be a tension between competence and autonomy. Because for a team member to experience competence, they need to know what winning looks like. They need to have clear standard operating procedures They need to understand how performance will be measured, how performance will be recognized, how they'll be rewarded for succeeding, what are the consequences for not succeeding. But on the other hand, people want to feel autonomous. They want to feel like they've got some choice and they've got some agency. 
And I think that, again, they're not mutually exclusive. They're certainly both possible. But one person, this is what makes this so challenging in the real world, is all art. One individual might find one approach or one system to be overly constraining, completely suffocating them, taking away all their freedom and all their agency, completely taking away any ability for them to be artistic. And then for another individual, that might not be enough structure. They might have lots of questions and they might have a lot of anxiety because they're not really sure what they're supposed to do and they really want to get it right. They really want some directive management. So how one decides to balance that, I don't think there's an algorithm for it because it always depends on the individual. It depends on the culture of the organization. It depends on the role. It also depends on the task. So here's another thing that's easy to forget. Somebody can be, for instance, a very high-level executive and broadly a very competent, confident, effective person in the organization. But as soon as they're doing a new role or a new responsibility, it's back to the drawing board. So that we have to be task-specific when we're looking about the amount of guidance people give. And I think, although this is not really an equation, the way that I tend to think about it is, we're just generally looking to balance systems and consistency with humanity and creativity. And we need both. If it's all systems and there's no human, that's not good. But if it's all willy-nilly making up as we go along, then that's also not going to lead to consistent experiences or consistent processes. When you're talking about managing staff, you also talk about management as opposed to leadership, mm-hmm. one of which you define as you know, is doing things right versus doing the right thing, right. with leadership being doing the right thing. Yeah. And you also talk about the importance of catching staff doing the right thing yeah. as well. So this is like a real kind of ethos for Mark Fisher Fitness. Yeah, we certainly try to be. You know, like everywhere else, we're certainly not perfect, and I think there's always you know room for us to get better at it, but... And, you know, it's funny, I think that's probably one of the things we have the biggest room to continue to grow on, because I think if there's one challenge we have, which, as always, the organization's issues are perhaps symptomatic of the leader, you know, I admit I do focus at times to a fault on what we could be doing better, what I could be doing better, right? I'm rarely, you know, as a leader, thinking about how great I am, right? When I think about, like, I'm so good at these things, instead I'm thinking about, like, I could have done this better. And it's something that is important that you don't fall into that trap. You can, you know, learn from my negative example, perhaps. And I think I'm pretty good, to be clear, about being effusive with the team. But as far as I'm concerned, you almost can't have enough good vibes in an organization. Or, and again, specific behavior is recognizing people for the thing that they're doing well. Because definitionally, having a business is having problems. So you're always solving problems. Things are always going wrong. People are deviating from the standards. Clients are upset. All sorts of things, are just, that's all your business is doing all day long is solving problems. You don't ever want to run out of problems. You don't ever want to stop creating solutions. But if we're only ever focused on what's not working, even if we're effectively focusing on solutions and not being the drum of the problem, we're not taking advantage of the opportunity to catch all the things that are going well. And right in you know, our brain, it's kind of brain is going to focus on the things that can improve. But I think as managers, we want to have positive relationships with the people we work with. We need to constantly be looking for what they're doing well. And also be specific about it. It's not enough just to be, good job, Billy. Okay, well, that doesn't, like, I don't know what that means, right? What specifically were they doing well? What specific behaviors were they doing? How did that impact the organization? How did that reflect the values you're looking for? Because, you know, we all need attention. We all need to be seen. And because a manager also part of their job would be to give critical directive feedback, it's important that that's not the only time managers are interacting with people. We want to make sure that they're getting a lot of love along the way. 
Mark, I mean, this sort of leads into accountability, which I know is is a big area for you as well. And as you say, I mean, you are the unicorn guy, but at the same time, you're also the kind of self-professed sheriff hard ass in the land of laws as well. So how do you you kind of manage that potential tension there between the like the fun side of things and like with your business, it really is like a very overt fun place to be with the the, the clearly like strictly enforced laws of the land. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, it really just starts with being clear in the first place about what the standards are and then also enforcing them consistently, right? Because I think it's inconsistent that gets people into issues because, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's easy to not catch the thing every time. You know, like I said, on the one hand, we want to catch people doing things right. But also, ideally, we're doing our very good faith best to catch any time we've deviated away from our agreed upon standards. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really the key. And I think, you know, it's interesting because at MFF, you know, it's interesting now, and like I only really have a couple direct reports to stay, right? I work with a leadership team who, as you'd imagine, are highly competent, right? It's very like not often that I have to, you know, discipline a senior, you know, somebody I'm working with for not doing their thing. I can imagine that. I can imagine from what we've talked about so far, I can imagine they're not going to be getting to that position. Yeah, yeah, or cer- certainly lasting for long. Yeah, for yeah, sure, for yeah. sure. So, you know, I think back to probably what the, they would say. Because we've recently had, I think, like so I think some pretty gifted managers that have been particularly good at this. I think you know a lot of it. Also, I think also comes down to being human, right? Just realizing, also like assuming that good intent, right? When someone's not doing the thing, we first of all have to you know get curious, like what else is going on? Maybe we weren't clear enough in the first place. Maybe we were clear enough, but they don't really know how to do the thing, you know. And also, all of us are, are entitled to mess up sometimes too, right? So the other thing, like. I don't want a place where people like are worried about their job because they mess up something once. But at the same time, people consistently mess up the same things over and over. There has to be some consequence for MFF to be the best place it could be. And frankly, for not to demoralize the rest of the team. So, and I think that perhaps one of the most important things to consider, which I think is not always grasped, is it's entirely possible to be very direct with people and hold them accountable without denying them their dignity or berating them. You can be direct with people and still be kind, right? My favorite paradigm of this actually comes from, there's a restaurateur in America, in New York City, named Danny Meyer, who runs, if you've ever seen Shake Shack anywhere, that was like one of his creations. And he talks about this paradigm management that I quite love called constant gentle pressure. That as the manager, constant gentle pressure needs to be constant, needs to be consistent. We never let off. But it's gentle, it's kind, it's respectful. We're never denying the person of dignity. But there's some pressure there, right? We're always gently just pushing them towards a higher level of performance, making sure people are performing at a high level. And I think I often think of those three elements to me as probably the very definition of good, of good management. Because any of those, any two of those, if they were missing one of the elements, that becomes really problematic. Sits well with staff. I mean, with your team members, I guess they know what to expect. Then, if it's it's a it's not a oh he's loving my work today, and then oh, oh no one's saying anything. It's a a constant behaving in the same manner with them all the time, so that they know exactly what to expect. They know that you're always looking for them to be doing slightly better, slightly better. Yeah, and you know that's something that you know I say a lot, and I think most of the team, you know. Something I say a lot to them is, you know, my intention is for MFF to be a demanding place to work. Mm. I want it to be a challenging place to work, not in a beat you down way, but hopefully in a way where it forces you to become 
constantly forcing you to become a better version of yourself. Now, are we doing that well all the time? No, of course not, right? Like, you know, I'm like not perfect. And we, you know, these systems are always improving. We're always looking to see like, how can we get better at doing that? Um, and the reality is like pressure is like not always like a, a fun thing, you know? But for what it's worth, like, I also invite it back from them. Like, I don't mind that, you know, my team is like never quite satisfied with what I'm doing, right? Like, it does go both ways. Now, certainly the dynamic is different. There's no way to sugarcoat that, right? When you're the boss or you're the direct report, it's going to be a different dynamic. But I do my best to invite feedback that's challenging. So it's, it, it really should ideally be going both ways. Because I can't see my, I'm on the wrong side of my eyes, right? I can't see my own places where I have blind spots where I'm getting people's way. So it's only through having, people that are willing to challenge me and constantly be pushing me more, which requires me both to be clear about my vision for who I want to be as a leader and how I want the organization to operate, as well as be open to hearing at times, like not fun things to hear about where I I could be more effective. Mark, something else that you talk about is meetings. Now, not everyone gets very excited by meetings, but I know that you're one of the few people that does. How much do you love meetings? Well, I love good meetings. (laughs) Life's too short for bad meetings, right? Life is too short for bad meetings. Do not tolerate bad meetings. So how can you make meetings more useful and more interesting? Yeah, so one of my favorite tips for this, a very actionable one, is just getting in the habit of rating every meeting at the end of it on a scale of 1 to 10 because then you'll get that immediate feedback because you might have thought the meeting was great, but if people with you did not, that, that's something you want to know, right? I think another, some other best practices around meetings are, number one, meetings, unfortunately, are very often used to share information. And that's not a great use of everyone's time. Now, occasionally there might be something that is a little bit complicated, something that you decide really needs that messaging, something that will require some question and answer from the people that need to know the information. So that could be a valid use of it, right? Like, so this isn't to say there's not a time and place for like a slide deck rollout of some initiative of something you really need people to understand. But when you're sharing fun facts, that is not a good use of the highly expensive time. And that's one thing that really sort of bogs people down over time. Meetings ideally are being used either to like debate and really brainstorm and do things uniquely required to solve issues and create solutions that can only happen when you come together and or on training where you're actually having skill acquisition, you're doing exercises that are putting people into unconscious or conscious incompetence where they're seeing themselves getting better at the skills that they need to adapt to be effective, whatever it is that they do. There's a great organizational consultant, a gentleman named Patrick Lancioni, who's read a, written a lot of books about effective organizations. And he talks a lot about meetings. And one of the points he makes that is so true is meetings aren't good unless there should be stakes. There should be stakes. There's no stakes in the meetings. It's like kind of boring. Like that, that's problematic. Ideally, the meetings, ideally, you're only doing things in the meeting that can only be done in the meeting. And unfortunately, a lot of meetings are used for information disbursement. So that's another, hopefully, takeaway for people listening. So if you can put it in an email and it doesn't require yeah. any any thoughts or inputs necessarily at that stage from anybody else, it should go in an email. And Save their precious time. Let them get on with their work. That's certainly, certainly my perspective. And again, listen, I live in the real world too. Like, So can I tell you that everybody in MFF reads every word of every email? Probably not. And I certainly can tell you that they don't remember grasping me to comprehend every word of every email because that's another skill set too. Is like, are you good at writing emails? Do you know how to communicate and use even elements of design and language to help people understand what it is you're asking them to understand? 
So, you know, once again, it's not that we never drop the ball on this, but it's something we look to do. And another pro tip, another thing that we often will do, we'll kind of use the tripwire. So oftentimes when we email the full team, if the manager wants to be sure everyone has read it, they'll put somewhere in there and please respond back with a name, with a gif of your favorite drag queen. So that way they know that everybody has read it because they've asked the people to take some action to confirm that they've read it instead of sending a communication, which, you know, in some cases people just, I get it, people don't always read stuff. I personally read everything, but I'm crazy, but I, I know not everybody does. And you've got an inbox full of pictures of RuPaul. Yeah, many people, yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, there are also, there are a lot of drag queen gifs in Mark Fisher Fitness's <laughs> world. Okay, Mark, I mean, that's, that's team meetings, which is one thing. How about sort of one-on-one catch-ups and annual check-ins? Is that something that you guys are pretty strict on? Yeah, we've, I think we are. We are. And it's something that, honestly, it's, and this is like fascinating to me, right? It, it took me, us, a, what I feel is a surprising amount of time to really make sure everybody was doing it. Like, because this is the thing that's so great about teaching. It's the last step of mastery. I'll often be teaching things and then I'll go back and be like, wait a minute, we're not, wait, we're not doing that thing. I just got on stage and told those people to do. And for me, that's very useful because I can't bear feeling like a hypocrite. So it provides a certain amount of urgency for me to make sure we're being congruent. If I'm telling other organizations they should do this, well, we better be doing it. So yeah, at MFF, I think we're now we're in a really good pulse as far as how often people are meeting with managers. It's again, same thing, everything else. I think we're always playing with that. But again, I keep thinking about it constraints, right? People need to probably have a dedicated meeting with a manager. Even if you've got a big staff of trainers, at least once every probably couple months, like no less than every three months, probably every month, depending on the individual, you might. So again, as I, I think I mentioned, I don't have a lot of people that report directly to me at this point, but one of them is our, our chief people officer. So I meet with him every week. Right, I meet with my business partner every week. So you have to kind of figure out the pulse based on what the person needs because the other thing too that is worth appreciating is meeting hygiene is another thing you'll never be done with. So you have to constantly be asking yourself, do we need to have this meeting? Do, can this meeting be done over email? If we need to have this meeting, what is the shortest amount of time that we can get this stuff done in? If we need to have this meeting and we can do this time, how often does, can it be? Can, it, can we go two weeks? Can we catch in between emails? Does it need to be every week? Because what happens in a lot of organizations are, and again, I'm a time management guy, there's real value in setting it in that we always do this thing at that time. But if we're not auditing it on a regular basis, much like many things in our life, it can quickly become not intentional. And we suddenly realize like, wow, I have all these like meetings that we're just kind of doing because we're doing, but I don't know if they're still actually serving the purpose that they were meant to serve. So Again, I love meetings that are well run, and I also love having as few meetings as is humanly possible. <laughs> I was reading recently, I think it's T-Bone Pickens, um, yeah, well-known businessman, and his, his tip for meetings is he always starts a meeting with the same question, which is, what do you got? So that yeah. anyone who goes to a meeting with him is, they know he's going to ask that and they can only show up if they've got something for him. He's expecting something. He's not just there to kill time. Yeah, you know, and it's it's interesting. I think, yeah, I, I and certainly I, for better or worse, have a lot of those tendencies. One thing I will say that I have learned that I think is another perhaps important distinction about meetings that I need to a second understand is depending on the individual and depending on your culture, if you get right into it and there's not some moment of like, how was your weekend or some moment of connecting as a person, that's another thing that will do some real violence for a while, particularly when like you're the boss, if it's only ever about, and I can see something like a T-Bone Pickens at this point probably doesn't deal with people 
you know, let, that he doesn't want to deal with any of it. It's not going to go right down to the point. And, you know, I suppose I could at some point create a world like that. Because quite frankly, I have to confess, that is my impulse. Mm-hmm. My impulse, we're here for work. What's the thing? Let's go down to it. But I've discovered because my higher intention is for the people I work with to feel cared for and for me to, because the thing is I do care for them, but their love language is we need a moment to check in. And I remember earlier in my career, I got some feedback about that from people on my team where they literally were like, you need to like ask them about their life, dude. Like mm-hmm. it can't just be about, you have to connect with them. It can't be, mm-hmm. it's very upsetting if the boss ever is only like, having said that, you know, I do think that in a sophisticated organization, the direct report generally should be leading the meeting, right? So when I'm meeting with people, I have my list, but we always prioritize what the person I'm managing has. I'm going to go through their stuff first because largely your job as a leader is to identify or remove roadblocks, remove obstacles, do the things that you're uniquely positioned to do. So I do think ultimately the person that is the direct report should ideally be running the meeting. Should ideally come with the list of here's the things I need help with, here's the things we need to talk about. And that is probably a good best practice for sure. When you're getting to the heart of things there really with a successful business, people facing business like personal training, like like fitness studios, it's about keeping happy people, happy members, happy team members. And I know you put almost equal emphasis on personal as well as professional development for your team. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I just think that You know, for me, my dream for MFF is that it's an organization that we become better versions of ourselves. We become closer to who we really want to be. Mm -hmm. And part of that is professional skill sets. It is a business. And part of, you know, you become, ideally, you learn about yourself and grow as a person by developing professional skill sets. So it's perhaps not as complete dichotomous as it sounds up front, but I also, we have no problem with doing just flat out personal development. So we, you know, like we brought in meditation teachers and done personal finance workshops with the team and goal setting and visioning stuff because, you know, for the team to, I think, effectively contribute to the mission of MFF, it's appropriate. There's, it's got to be something in it for them. So I think the more effective we become at addressing ourselves as a full human, on the one hand, yes, it, we're more effective in the business. The business gets better results, but also it makes the organization more worthwhile. And then we reach the real prize, which is finding ways to maximize the, our impact and sort of live out our potential to to serve other people. Because another thing we've spent a lot of time at MFF, which is another skill, it is a master skill, is learning how to have very difficult conversations with each other. So in a lot of places, the important conversations are not being had. People aren't saying the thing. And by the way, MFF, no exception. I'm certain right now that there are things that are problematic that are going on. There's obvious to everybody that nobody has had the courage to tell me, right? Like Because people are shy away from yeah, conflict. Yeah, it's just, listen, it's just the, the price of admission. And I think, you know, that used to really upset me, I think, in the beginning. And the longer I've been in the game, the more I realize, like, that's just kind of the way people are. And the more that I can appreciate that MFF, you know, maybe we don't do it 100% of the time, but, like, we do it more than a, a lot of places. We do it more a lot of places. So, like, I... And it's very rare for me to go more than, you know, two to three months without having a very difficult conversation with someone where either they pull out a piece of paper or I pull out a piece of paper. So now if a piece of paper comes out after somebody's been asked to meet with you, you know, something is going to go down because that means some person, they really took a time to like, I really need to make sure I say this to you properly. And actually, you know, it's a great sign of respect. I mean, it's like I care enough about you that I wanted to get all these thoughts on paper. I wanted to organize them to give you an organized perspective of where I'm at. I want to make sure that 
in the heat of emotion, I don't say something clumsily. That I, I say things in a thoughtful way. I want to make sure I don't forget all the things that I wanted to share with you. And it is cliche, but I do believe it is true that a lot of one's success in life is going to be correlated to the number of difficult conversations you have where you're both able to share and receive difficult things. And going back to one of my previous points, that doesn't need to be at the expense of the relationship. That if you get very good at that, if you get elegant at it, not only will it not be at the expense of the relationship, but the relationship will be strengthened. It will be fortified for having had this real vulnerable moment with each other where you, with humility and kindness, shared where you're at and then understand each other better and understand the way the world sees you better. Interesting, Mark. Thank you so much for talking with the Fitness Industry Podcast today. If our listeners want to find out anything more about you, what you do, Mark Fisher Fitness, apart from the website, anywhere else they can go? Yeah, businessforunicorns.com. If anyone's interested in this type of information, like I said, we talk a lot about management, but also customer service and time management. Talk a lot about coaching conversations, which has become a niche for us, I think, because those skills are broadly applicable as fitness professionals working with clients but also useful as managers working with their teams. It's useful as a salesperson talking with the prospect. It's just a very useful skill to get good at asking certain types of questions and listening in a very deep way. So yeah, people can check that out if they're interested. We do offer courses several times a year in New York City on that. The most, I'm not great at social media, but they can find me at mfisherfitness on Instagram and they will occasionally see pictures of my dog. Mark, thanks again for talking to the Fitness Industry Podcast. Real pleasure. Thanks for having me. To grow the success of your fitness business, learn from the industry experts in Network's online business skills courses, accredited for CECs and other continuing education points. Go to the Network website, select the Courses tab and click on Business. Network members save up to 30% on courses, so head to fitnessnetwork.com.au today to grow your skill set and fitness career. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Filex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar at filex.com.au.